What is up, everyone? My name is Danny, and this is the It Makes Sense podcast. Here at It Makes Sense, we address why the Christian worldview is the only worldview that makes the most sense out of life in the universe. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of It Makes Sense. Uh, I'm glad to have you, and we're going to talk about something today that I call the Mark Twain problem. I don't know how many of you know Mark Twain uh, had an interesting relationship with religion and uh, religious people, particularly Christianity. And he had some, uh, there's, there's, you could look at there, there's a dozen websites out there that have quotes, nothing but dedicated to Mark Twain and his, what looked to be anti-Christian uh, uh, sentiments towards it. Um, but oddly enough, there, there's, we're going to talk a little bit about a brief his, history of him, but this, what we're going to talk about today is a meme that is not going to be our, it doesn't make sense segment, it's actually going to be our show today. And it's got to get a lot of points to it. So we're going to do half of them, and then we're going to do a part two, and we'll do the other half. But if Josh will pull this up for you, we'll go ahead and get started in this. And what I really want to point out first is at the bottom of this is the quote that John uh, Mark Twain actually made, the best cure for Christianity is reading the Bible. Um, and and that, that's a very interesting quote. Sort of gives you an idea of how Mark Twain feels about the Bible. But there is there is a theme here that I do want to point out. And I'm going to do that through sharing a little bit about him and his history and, or his past and just get an understanding. There's another quote, though, that I think is also very interesting and, and that Mark Twain made. And it's, if Christ were here, there's one thing he would not be a Christian. And if you are getting a sense that when you hear these things, there may be something in there that Twain is having an issue with. And it's largely the person that's representing Christ. But a little background on him. His mother was a devout Christian. He was, when he grew up, he grew up and went to church quite a bit. And that's something that she had him in and a part of. And so he was very familiar with scripture and he actually accepted many Christian doctrines. And there are some doctrines, you know, that he lived by, which we know a lot of people that are Christians that accept Christian morals and in the ethics of, of Christianity and live by a lot of those doctrines. But he was uh, one that was very critical of Christianity. He critiqued uh, the faulty understandings of Christianity. And, and so when I say that, you're, it's really the people who are living out these Christian lives in front of him. A lot of his personal, very close relationships were with Christians, very devout Christians. So you sort of wonder and get a sense, is he forming his worldview of, uh, or his perspective of Christianity based on the immediate people that are close to him and in his life that are very devout Christians? Or is this something more on the outside as, as he was a, uh, a pretty consistent church follower as an adult, and he uh, probably was seeing some of the activities and the uh, actions of people in the church, but he was pretty adamant about how he felt, and he was very vocal about it. Now, Mark Twain's a writer, and he, he was sort of a, a comedian for his day, very humorous in a lot of his writings. If you know, one of his most famous books is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and um, when you're looking at some of these things that he wrote, uh, he was some of the things I've learned, actually, he was very critical of missionaries in one of his writings called Roughing It. Uh, in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, he shared his disdain, disdain for uh, camp meeting rival, uh, revivals. He attacked major Christian doctrines in his writing, What is Man? Uh, he criticized the character of God, predestination. Uh, he wasn't a fan of Calvinism at all, especially the concept of election. Uh, he... Um, did not and he was not particularly fond of Christ's invention, what he called invention of hell. The Bible's claims that 
only a small percentage of people will get to heaven was also something he had a problem with, amongst many other things. He, he raised a lot of good questions, but he also raised a lot of critical questions of Christianity. And in his humorous uh, way of putting things, probably was very cynical, I would say. If you read some of those quotes, they sound very cynical. But he was um, not what you would call a Christian, even though he called himself a pastor at, some, at one point because he was so familiar with Christianity in the sense of the people around him and the time he spent with them, and apparently the scriptures that he read. The idea behind this meme I find is, is what's interesting is these points here that you see are not from him. So whoever created this meme, and there's going to be a little bit of assumptions here because I can only go off by what I see here but it's talking about the New Testament and is bringing up verses from the New Testament, okay? The, um, the, the verses that it's bringing up and the, and the things that it's saying about those verses, which, which you know there's a problem already when they don't supply the verse. Now, there's 19, I think 19 um, verses on here, but they're not supplying any of the verses to it. They're just giving you the, the, the book, the chapter and verse, and then they're saying what that's about, as if you should just, number one, just believe them and then just take what they're saying as truth. Or at the very least, they're hoping that you're going to look up that one verse in isolation. But what you're going to soon find out is as we go through these, and we're, like I said, we're going to do about nine or ten first, and then we'll come back and do a part two and do the rest of them. But you're going to start seeing that in context, a lot of these verses are easily understood and clarified and don't mean anything of what the, the person who created this meme is mean. So they're using Mark Twain. And this is what the, I want to get to as far as, I guess, the main overall objective here is the understanding that they're taking Mark Twain's attitude towards Christianity, and then they're, they're coming over to the verses and saying, this is what this verse means. And then they're just saying, okay, look, all these negative things are in the Bible, and because they're in the Bible, and you're, you, you, know, you must not read the Bible because if you call yourself a Christian, that you've got to be ignorant um, to have missed all of these things, or you're just accepting, you know, abusive behaviors or whatever they're claiming here in each one of these verses. And so the person is, is probably more or less been jaded to some degree by people in the Christian faith. And I think this is this is a huge problem for us as Christians is there are a lot of us, and I'll, I'll include myself into this, there are a lot of us that have made poor choices and have been bad examples of Christ. And that reflects on those who don't believe Christ in a negative way to a degree that they won't believe in him. There, there's no way that they're going to follow a God or a, a book that is written by men that are sinful, that make poor decisions, that are, are pretty terrible to some degree. Uh, there, you know, I was just listening to a podcast before I came over to record today, and it was talking about heroes in the Old Testament, but it was making the disclaimer that these really aren't heroes. They're just people that made, had followed God and were faithful and were obedient, but in a lot of ways they were very disobedient, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. They've done some pretty terrible things, including and up to murder. Uh, so, so God takes very fallible people, people that are you you most likely wouldn't see to be the ones that you would use as an example or use to uh, share your mission with, to say, hey, go out and do this for me or include them in the plan. But God does because God is using broken people and he, he's a God of redemption. So this right here is sort of giving us an example and should teach us as Christians, 
the idea that there's a lot of people out there that are watching us and we have to be careful in how we conduct ourselves and we have to be aware and know that in our conduct in how we conduct ourselves as Christians that people are going to take that as in that's Christ and if we do the wrong thing they may very well reject Christ now it's their decision we can't say that we have to take full responsibility for that because they do have a choice and and honestly this is one of the things where you can't put the um, the onus on Jesus sometimes when it's the person reflecting him poorly that's that's the problem Jesus is is very if you read his story if you read the New Testament and you read all of these verses in context with the New Testament writers whether it's Jesus's words um, or whether it's Paul or James or Peter or anybody else that's you know Luke that that wrote any of the letters or any of the books in the New Testament that they are giving a great picture of who Jesus is and what he's expecting of us, but it also shows how far we can fall as Christians as well. So again, keep in mind that as we're going through this, and, and this is just something simple that I, I want to do, and we'll do quite a bit on this show, um, is go through verses that are being taken out of context, mean misinterpreted or used or uh, purposely uh, misconstrued to present an idea of Christianity that's actually not true. So let's go ahead and get started with this. And we're going to start with the first one. And it says, prayer, not doctors, if you're sick. So what what he's saying is in James 5.14, without you knowing the verse, he's saying that uh, God, James, is asking you to go pray if you're sick before you go to the doctor. So there's a couple things we need to know about that. But first, let's look at the verse. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil, in the name of the Lord. So if you understand first century uh, living back then, there was not a lot of doctors, and usually the wealthy were more inclined to be able to have physicians, okay? And not to mention that the the, the medical knowledge back then was very, very limited, very primitive. primitive. We, didn't, we don't have the advances, obviously, that we have today. But there were certain common medical ail, um, uh, remedies that were used, and one of those was oil, olive oil to be specific. And so when we're looking at this verse, we have to look at a couple of things. First of all, you got the word um, sick. Did that mean spiritual? Did that mean physical? Well, in this sense, because we're talking about anointing and we're talking about oil that's used for medicinal purposes, uh, that this is actually a physical sick here. Now, it does talk about spiritual sickness in the next couple of verses, but here it, it's, it's saying, go to the elders and let them know. Let your community know that you need prayer for, the, for being sick. And then what they're going to do after that is they're actually going to rub or massage some oil on you because the elders were looked at as not just the authorities in the church, but oftentimes as the the healers, the the doctors per se, because we're talking about common people. We're talking about a lower class of people compared to the upper class elite folks. And so they're going to these elders and these elders would, you know, they would anoint them in oil or rub and massage oil on them. Sometimes it wasn't just about putting it on the forehead, but it, it sometimes even dousing somebody in oil, but this was for a medical sense here, and this was a legitimate thing. So it's this verse has got to be understood in its context of first century. Not like we could just make an appointment, call on the phone, make an appointment to the doctor or the you know the hundred of hundreds of doctors in your local area. If you live in a city that you could go to, it just wasn't like that. Doctors just weren't readily available, um, and and a lot of times you just you might not have trusted it. But this is. This is telling us two things that we need to do. First of all, let people know that we're, we may be sick and, and we need prayer. And then, then go get that healing. Go get the medicine. It's not telling us not to go to a doctor because that's exactly what they were doing. Is they were applying a medicinal use of an oil to the person. So it's, 
we're going to see this a lot in a lot of these verses is reading further scripture before and after the verse that they bring up, knowing a little bit about the context of the culture back then. You know, it, a couple of things, I, I've said this before, four points that you'll le- learn in Dan Kimball's book, four easy points when reading scripture. All right. You need to know it's a library and it's not just one book. It's a library of books. So that helps you understand what you're reading and how to interpret it when you're reading it. You can't interpret uh, a history, historical book the same way you could a, a poetry book. Um, it's written for us, but not to us. That's number two, written for us, but not to us. So though it can be applied to us, we have to understand and see it through the eyes of a first century, you know, Middle Eastern peasant. All right. And then the third one is, you know, don't take a verse. uh, Don't just read a verse. Don't just take it out of context. You have to read the context surrounding the verse. And that's in anything that you do today. You read a newspaper article. Don't just read article. Read the entire, or don't just read the title. Read the entire article. All right. All right. So going on to the second one, it says women should shut up in church. Now, this is one you hear quite a bit, all right? And all right, when we look at 1 Corinthians 14.34, in light of what the person just said, it says women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive just as the law says. All right, so first of all, this is something, again, we're reading this, and this is a couple of things to know. This is in the city of Corinth, a very uh, depraved um, idol worship is huge uh, pagan culture. All right. There's, there's a lot of uh, one of the temples is a temple that is worshiping a goddess that they do a lot of orgies and sexual uh, rituals because they believe that that is what that goddess uh, is, desires for you to be in favor for them. So there's a lot of uh, depravity and debauchery and, and uh, sexual perversions and things like that going on in Corinth, amongst other things. Okay, it's a it's a, a port town, so it's it's on the water. So there's a lot of trade and a lot of people from all over the world, or you know, or at least in the large area, a large regional area, coming to this city to trade and and just work in um, merchant work and giving up goods and selling goods and things like that. Okay. So there's a lot of different people from all over the place here. And so if we read a little bit more here, all right, in context, there's other places that Paul um, has told other people to be silent, not just women. Okay. So if we're looking at verse 27 through 28, Paul says, those who would speak in tongues must keep silent. Um, this is another group of people he's talking to, because if someone was uh, else was speaking, he didn't want them to speak in tongues, or if there was no interpreter, he didn't want them to speak in tongues. And, and that's a whole other thing. I know that may be confusing for you. We'll talk about tongues another time, not for this episode. That would be probably could do three episodes on that. And then in another place in verse 29, 31, uh, the first part of 31, in the same chapter, uh, Paul says that a prophet must be silent if someone else is, uh, has the floor and is speaking. So there's there's two other places where it's told that uh, other people need to be silent. So this isn't just picking on women, but in the context of the church of Corinth, Paul was writing letters. If you read 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 2, we get a sense that it's very chaotic. And so in one of the senses, when he's talking about speaking in tongues, he was telling people that you're just abusing this gift and you're speaking in tongues and you just sound like noisy gongs and cymbals, okay? You're just, you're just making noise and you're actually scaring people that are coming in and that are new to the church. And so this is probably something that's not as beneficial as you think when you're using it the way you're using it. So he's wanting them to be silent in what they're doing or at least quiet down a little bit more in that. But the idea is that their church gatherings were very chaotic. And so when you have the person who's leading the church or, you know, maybe the, the, 
the pastor that, that Paul had put in place or the one that was there, they're there trying to teach the congregation, but there's a lot of people talking, a lot of people talking, okay? And so you've got women that are coming out of a pagan culture where they have a little bit more voice. They're, 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 uh, some of these were probably temple prostitutes that were coming to Christ, and they're coming into a church. They have a lot of questions. They're used to living life in one way. They're used to uh, manipulating men and, and talking over them when in the culture of the Jewish culture, you have more of a patriarch, you have more of a man leading uh, the household and teaching in, in that way. And so in the context of this culture, you have women that are interrupting more or less the the church service. We have other places in scripture where there's women that are prophets and teachers, okay, and and women that are leaders. So it's not like it's not saying that. And Paul even says earlier in Corinthians, uh, talking about women prophesying and teaching, and he doesn't say that that's bad, but there's a time and place for it. And so he's not only just talking to the women, but he's talking to the church overall saying, Y'all, this is just very chaotic. Nobody's learning anything, and, and you're over-talking each other. And so the teacher who's actually there to teach is not getting anything done. You're not hearing that person. And when, when we look at culture, our culture's a little bit different here. I think there, there can be a discussion about whether or not women should have authority and, and pastoring and teaching over men. We're not going to have that conversation right now. But our culture does allow room for women to talk, ask questions, okay? But I think for anybody, it doesn't matter. It's understanding the situation and when it's appropriate to, to say something when it's not. And for, for a culture back then when it was largely the men that taught, and then you had these women that were coming out of this pagan culture again, and they were used to having an authority to some degree over the men that would come into the temple that would have orgies with them, that would pay respects to the goddess by sleeping with uh, all these temple prostitutes, bringing their offerings and stuff. They had this sense and this sort of this idea that they could do that. And so Paul is saying, no, we, we do things a certain way here. We want everybody to be able to grow in Christ and learn and listen. So please do that. Ask your questions later. He even says, you know, if you're married, ask your husbands when you, when you get home type deal. So he's, he's definitely not saying women should shut up in church. And it's just understanding the context entirely here, okay, and seeing everything else that revolves around it. The next one says, don't get married. 1 Corinthians 7.27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. When you read 28, the next verse, it says, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such people as yourselves will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. But then we go back to 26, because I said, we got to read this in context. So I'm going to read 26 through 28, and we'll do it all together. 26 says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. Remember that. What does Paul mean by present distress? Okay, and then he says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such people as yourselves will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. So he says it's okay to marry. You're not sinning if you get married. But if we look at what we're talking about here, the main point of this is verse 26 sets it up. I think then that this is a good, this is good in view of the present distress. What is that distress? That distress is, and it's the same thing that Jesus taught and talked about, the great distress is this idea back then that they were struggling with this severe persecution of the Christian church. At some point, they had to go into hiding. We know eventually that the Roman church was taking Christians and throwing them in the Colosseum. And there is severe persecution. And in that persecution, Paul was saying, even as himself, who was single at that time, some speculate because he was a Pharisee that he was also married because it's one of the requirements. But Paul was um, saying, 
it's just better at this moment in time. Don't, don't bring somebody else into your life because the persecution is so great. The stress, the distress is so great that potentially this may be harder for you to fulfill the walk and the mission that Jesus Christ has given you just as he has given Paul. Paul was greatly persecuted. He had been through a lot of issues outside of just being shipwrecked and bitten by a, a snake and, and other things. He was imprisoned and all this. It would have been that much harder to be married while going through all of this. So we have to look at this entire passage in that context. We can't just say, oh, Paul's just telling people not to marry, especially when we read 18. that He says, but if you married, you have not sinned. So he's not saying it's wrong to marry. He's just saying that those that are called to the same life of singleness that Paul is called to because they are called to this great mission of evangelism and traveling and and possibly being thrown in jail on multiple occasions or being beat, okay, that he's saying that maybe it's just best that you just do this in a singleness aspect, all right? We're looking at verses in the entire context, trying to derive and make sure that we're not just taking things like this person when they read verse 27 of chapter of chapter 7 1 Corinthians and they go oh it's telling us not to get married well no it's it's definitely not saying that and we, we we it's quite easily seen in verse 28 all right the next one is the wealthy will be condemned by god james 5 1 through 5 all right so let's read that come now you rich people weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth eaten Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will serve as a testimony against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived for pleasure on the earth and lived luxuriously. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. All right. So there are several places in Scripture where we are, where you talk about, where God talks, Jesus talks about wealth. He talks about riches, okay? And he even says that it is more difficult for um, a rich man to, to get in heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. So basically it's impossible, right, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. He's not saying it's impossible for a rich man to get to heaven, but he's saying because a person puts so much, a person that has wealth, and a person that has material possessions will put so much into that wealth. And we're, this is going to come up in some other verses that this person had brought up. But they put so much into their treasure here on earth that they will not want to give any of that up if asked to. It's become their God. It's become their idol. All right, And that's what James is trying to say here. He's saying, like, judgment is coming on you rich people that have misused your riches, your wealthiness, for uh, control and abuse of authority and power over people that work for you. He's saying that because of how you have lived and because of the, the priorities that you have had, you have put your riches and your treasures first before God, that you will be judged for this. This is an admonishment of a rich person misusing his, uh, his riches that God blessed him with rather than saying that, no, you can't be wealthy or you can't be rich. I know it's hard for some people to believe out there, but there are very wealthy people out there that love the Lord, that God has blessed, and that they use to be a blessing, that they give money away, and that they're able to have resources to help others out or to advance the kingdom of God. It is not a sin to have wealth, but 
It is what is in your heart and how your heart is in terms of the wealth that you have here versus the treasures that we're told to store up in heaven, which means the life we live here, if we're living it to glorify God and we're living it to, uh, to advance his kingdom, we're storing up treasures in heaven, which is more important than anything here that Jesus tells us can be eaten and, and, and destroyed by moth and rust and just decay period, or can be stolen by thieves. We'll talk about that again here more in a minute. It says, you know, since some, since this is something more inclined to the wealthy, James is pointing them out specifically, reprimanding them for the mistreatment of those they employ. Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So, again, th- this is part of another passage of understanding that we are not to collect material things here. We are going to die someday. This is a very temporary place for us. The eternal place of heaven or hell is where we will end up, depending on your decision here on earth. But those things that we collect here are not going to go with us. And there is a place where treasures are being stored up. In a place, if we think more with this eternal perspective, we're going to act and do differently here on earth. We're going to look at others in a different way, and we're going to look at them as a way that how can we serve them rather than how can we put our foot on them and push them down. As in these these folks that James was uh, pointing out here, the rich people that were put, putting down those that they were employing. All right. The next one, women, don't dress up, fix your hair, or wear jewelry. So they're pulling that from 1 Peter 3.3, 3, which says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, and the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear. I want to continue, verse 4 and 5. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. There were two types of women in the Bible, or even during that time, that typically wore a lot of jewelry, wore their hair a certain way, and really presented themselves in probably in immodest clothing, that would be those that were more wealthy and those that were prostitutes, okay? In between, you had those that were more modest and didn't dress that way because if they did, number one, they if they weren't elite, they couldn't look to be elite or wealthy, and they definitely didn't want to associate to be with prostitutes or in that kind of club. So the idea is women are to be modest in how they, it doesn't mean they can't look pretty. It doesn't mean that they can't look pretty for their husbands, but why are they doing it? And this is the same thing for men. This is the same thing for us. So if we apply it to today's culture, we even look that like the standards for modesty have really, really dropped. Okay. Um, we, we see sex cells everywhere. Uh, we see even, even in, in certain, unfortunately, certain documentaries that are on a certain, um, platform that streams movies and shows where you have kids either dancing a certain way or dressing a certain way, looking very, very seductive, too young for their age. And we know that even as somebody's getting older, if you're a woman, men are constantly being told not to catcall when women are wearing certain things, very sexualized uh, looking clothes, very uh, scant clad. I mean, just maybe near nothing. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean, mean men have the right to catcall, okay? I'm not saying that. But when we see men who are very physically, uh, by, by just the eyes, are very turned on in that sense very easily, women, a lot of women know this, and that's how they draw attention. And so 
what what Peter's saying here is don't draw attention to yourself like that. Like that's not what you're supposed to be about. And same thing with men. You know, you've got guys out there that are just, you know, have 12 packs and pecs, you know, for days and shoulders for days, you know, and their biceps are huge and they're ripping their shirts off and they're doing this because they're trying to draw attention. I mean, when you see stuff like that, there's a reason for it. And it's definitely not a heart after God. Okay. And, And we have to make sure that we understand that God's not telling us to look pretty. He's not telling us to look handsome. He wants us to, to have an appearance that is, uh, that is clean and that that looks well to our spouses and that that's the reason why we we want to to look handsome or we want to look pretty doesn't mean you can't get dressed up for your husband when you go out on a date night or you can't look sharp for your you know handsome for your wife when you go on a date night the point is is not about dressing up and fixing your hair or wearing jewelry the point is about the condition of the heart and that's what peter's trying to get to is the condition of the heart and that's why four and five sort of explain that is let your beauty be shown by your heart and your gentle and quiet spirit and just you and how you carry yourself or the, the actions that you take and the things that you do that are glorifying to God. Let's uh, go on to the next one. Return runaway slaves to their owners. This one is a huge stretch. Philemon is not a large, long book at all. It doesn't take a whole lot of reading to know that this is way off because when we get in the context of this one, and, and, and he's pulling from Philemon one twelve, and what that says is, I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. The second part of that verse right there should tell you. He's not saying return slaves. Now, first of all, Onesimus, Onesimus had stolen from Philemon, okay? He took from him and stole from him. He was already a bondservant, most likely paying off a debt of some sort. But he had stole from him and then took off, and he runs away to Rome, now, in some way, it's not sure about how he comes across with Paul and how they cross paths, but the idea is that Onesimus had ran away with whatever he stole from Philemon, and he came across Paul, and Paul led him to the Lord. And when we read this in verse 15, now that's after verse 12 to verse 15, where Paul's talking about him being in chains and having this son, meaning a new son in Christ, uh, with him while he's there. But he writes this letter to Philemon, and this is what he continues to say. He says, it seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, meaning he's a brother in Christ now, because Philemon was also a Christian. And he says, especially to me, Paul uh, continues, now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Paul is saying, receive him as you would receive me. Now, in, in first century Jewish culture, you don't just say hi to somebody on the street. When you, you're going to have a meal with them, okay? You're going to sit down with them. You're going to go into their house. This is where it becomes intimate relationship. That's how Jews in, in first century were. Uh, there was very little of just saying hi. It was more of uh, we're, going to, we're going to do life together here for a moment. I want to bring you into my house. I want to feed you. We're going to sit down. We're going to have a conversation. And Paul's telling Philemon to receive his bondservant that ran away, that stole from him and ran away to receive him in that manner. And in that Paul will even pay his debt. Okay. 
Now, this is definitely, there's no way I understand how the person did this. But again, if you take a verse out of isolation and you remove, and with him comes my own heart, and, and you just decide, oh, well, Paul's just telling all runaway slaves to be returned. Well, first of all, the idea of slavery in this time was a little bit different. There were slaves, but slavery, if you consider it this way, slavery is when you basically stole somebody, all right? You didn't, you weren't, there wasn't a debt to be paid. Most of it was more of a bond servant. You'll look in some translations today, more recent translations, they use the word bond servant in place of slavery when, it, when it's considering a person who is in debt to another person and they give themselves to be a bond servant so they can pay off that debt. But in year seven, according to Jewish law, they're supposed to be forgiven of all their debt and they can either become part of the family to, uh, or they can be released and set free. And in some cases, even with an inheritance for that. So, so this person is just using slaves as this, as this we're talking about, you know, the mid-1800s in, in the Civil War, and we're trying to free the slaves, and slaves are running away. And, and, and Paul would say, no, you need to return those slaves back to the slave owners. This is not the same situation at all. That is completely a different context than what Paul's talking about here. And ultimately, even a different relationship in the fact that Paul led Onesimus to Christ and he's asking Philemon to treat him as a brother in Christ and not treat him as a bondservant anymore. And even that his debt should be wiped away. This next one, I've always, you know, when I was younger and I read this verse, I was like, wow, this one is intense. Um, he says, gouge out your eyeball and cut off your own hand. Now, this is two of them. I'm going to combine these two because they're basically uh, in the same thread. The, the person here uses Matthew 5, 29 through 30. That's where, where, where we see this. And it says, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. All right. There's a word. Everybody, please repeat after me. Hyperbole. This is something that is used in, in a lot of literature, but especially in the Bible. There's hyperbole throughout Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. Basically, hyperbole is just a figure of speech that is just blowing something up to a bigger proportion. For instance, I've been waiting forever. No, you haven't. You've been waiting for five minutes, okay? It seems like forever, I guess. But no, you have not been waiting forever. Forever is just is just making it bigger when it's not actually true. But it's trying to drive home a point. I'm ready to go. All right. The other one, another one is the, this bag of groceries weighs a ton. No, it doesn't. Now, I understand a bag, paper bag full of canned goods can weigh a lot. All right. And if you got to hold it for a while, your biceps are going to get tired. I don't have hips like my wife does, so I can't just set it on my hips. That's why holding my kids, I can never hold them as long as my wife could. But a bag of groceries does not weigh a ton. It's just expressing how heavy it is to get the point across that this is heavy. And that's the same thing that Jesus is saying here, because when we read what Paul says in Romans, he says, for the wages of sin is death. And we see multiple times where we understand that sin is a separation from God and to be apart from God means that we are doomed to eternal death in hell. And Jesus is making very clear, he is driving home a very intense point here. If you are tempted to sin, cut out your eye, cut off your hand, all right? I'm saying to be that intense because death, eternal death in hell is severe. 
So again, this is a hyperbole. Jesus is stressing to his audience the heinous nature of sin, and, and we have to understand that. He's not telling us to go pluck out our eye. He's not telling us to go you know, chop off our hand. But he's telling us to take extreme action in the sense of take sin seriously and take my grace and my saving grace seriously. Accept it, and then we'll, we'll, we, can, we can work on the sinful nature that is in you that I'm going to wipe away, and we're going to replace it with a new spirit, and we're going to help you overcome the flesh that you have to live with. Never swear an oath. And I always thought this was an interesting one. Uh, and I sort of, whenever I'd hear pastors preach on it, it confused me sometimes because I'm like, yeah, I mean, he's saying don't, 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 you know, get into contracts that you don't need to get into. But there's a little bit more to it than that. Uh, and I'm going to actually read this, but let me read the verse, five, Matthew 5:34. But I say, do not make vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. Verse 37 continues, just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond is from the evil one. So I want to read something from gotquestions.org because I think they really uh, they really nail this pretty good on explaining more in depth with a little bit of a cultural background on this. All right, a little background information is helpful in understanding Jesus' words here. The religious leaders of the day advocated keeping a vow if it was a public vow using God's name. However, if the vow was made in the course of everyday conversation referencing only heaven, heaven, or earth, or Jerusalem, giving you your, your air quotes, it was not only really binding, it was not really binding. Okay, so in other words, he's saying that if this was just in a passing conversation, all right, we're just talking about this, you know, between us. And you make these agreements and, and everything, and you're not actually making a binding uh, yes or no. You're not saying, I'm contractually obligating myself to this, okay? Um, people had a loophole. That's This is the loophole. They could lie or exaggerate in their conversations and lend themselves an air of credibility by saying, I swear by heaven that this is true. They could not be held to account because they did not specifically swear by God's name, and the vow was private. Jesus countered the, that idea. If you swear something, it had better be true. He says, in fact, all you need to say is yes or no. Your word should be good. There's no need for overwrought expressions to bolster your case. So what he's saying is you don't have to go into public, announce it, and say by heaven, by earth, or, or Jerusalem, or whatever the, the, the tagline was to make it official. He's saying that in those private conversations, you should be bound to your word. Don't say something in a private conversation and then go back on it. And simply just say yes or no. Don't have to do this big yes and no, 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 no. Don't just like yes or no. You will do that, okay? But he's, he's trying to tell us like what we say means something and our words have meaning and we need to stand by our words. We need to stand by some, something we say in a private conversation just as much as we would a public conversation. All right, here's a popular one. Don't defend yourself if attacked. So a lot of people say Jesus was a pacifist. And, and to some degree, I can see why they say that, especially the fact that he was crucified on the cross, all right? But there's a couple of things we need to know about this particular verse, Matthew 5.39. First of all, it says, But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Okay, this is not about pacifism right here. Matter of fact, this is not really about a physical attack. This is more about, you ever heard the... Um, the phrase, a slap in the face, you know, Johnny, you know, when he went back on that deal that we did, that was a slap in the face, right? It was disrespectful. It was sort of, you know, um, pushing back on, on, on an agreement that we had. It was, it was a, a white lie or a little lie or whatever you kind of lie you want to call it. 
So Jesus is giving a, a command to forego retaliation for personal offenses is what he's trying to tell us. He's like, I don't care if you've been offended. It doesn't mean that you go back and you are justified now to treat the person the way the, to treat the person in the manner that you were treated. So with this whole, you know, being slapped in the cheek, it was sort of an idea of um, that personal offense. And so Jesus is saying in that regard, when you're personally offended, give them the other side. You know, we're told to love our enemies. Don't worry about protecting your honor in the, in the face of slander. I mean, we've, we've seen people die over in situations like that. I mean, they used to do, um, what were they called? Duels. They would do duels with swords or with guns. I mean, just because their honor was, you know, disrespected. And, and Jesus is saying, why are you going that far? Okay, just just forgive them. Move on. Let bygones be bygones. This is how we operate in the, in, in the Christian world. Okay, um, giving up your cloak, right? And and when when somebody's asking for something, and this is going to go into uh, the next. We'll, we'll we're going to stop here in a minute, but we're going to talk about this next part. And part two is going to sort of go into that. When Jesus is going through all these things in this particular chapter, in chapter five. He is, you, you've got to take it all into context because if you don't, you're going to start to believe things like don't defend yourself if attacked or, you know, never swear an oath. And, and again, I think, I think even to this, to the degree that this person wrote some of this stuff, I think they believed that some of these things were probably inflammatory, maybe and even, even intentionally made them sound that way. I, I can't promise you that. I know that for sure. But some of these things just take a little bit more study and research. And I'd hope that somebody that's this, this willing to go this far in sharing all of these verses and try to discount Christianity based off just a single verse is smart enough in anything else they do to not just read a sentence in a book and then give their whole formulated opinion on the entire book. You would never do that. You don't listen to a line in a movie and say, you know, this movie from beginning to end was this, this, and this, when you just listen to one line in a movie. All right, folks, we're going to come back next time with part two of this. I appreciate you listening today. Uh, If you would give me a like, a share, a comment, um, follow us. In the meantime, I appreciate you guys. God bless.